Today we come uh, to the end of our series, reading and studying through the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation. As you've already heard, next week our schedule changes just a little bit. We will be beginning, Lord willing, uh, a study through the Gospel of Luke. But today we finish uh, by looking at the church in Laodicea. Uh, The church in the letter that Matthew Henry says is not only the last but the worst. Uh, The church that has nothing uh, from the Lord uh, to commend them, uh, but only a challenge and only a call to turn and to repent. It's a sober warning. Uh, but we hear it today in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 and reading to the end of verse 22. You can find that on page 1030 if you picked up an ESV on the way in. Today, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Before we come to the Lord and read his word, let us go to him again in prayer, seeking his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, thank you that you are the Amen, the one who is true and faithful, and he gives your word as a witness and a testimony to your work. And so we pray that you, by your spirit, would give us hearts that are true and faithful to you. You would speak to us by your word, speak to us of your mercy in Christ Jesus, speak to us uh, by the moving of your spirit as we read it, as you use this living and active word to divide us and to expose us before your law that you may stitch us together by your gospel. Gracious Lord, do this. For the sake of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe your nakedness, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. One of the many things that I have had to learn from my wife over the course of our marriage is the art of hospitality. I have learned over almost 12 years that there is a whole slew of unwritten rules and assumptions 
uh, that come into play whenever you have someone over to your house. And it, it doesn't matter. I know some uh, here are more uptight and some are more laid back, but the same assumptions, the same rules uh, come into play when you have someone over. Uh, for example, I've learned that when you invite someone, it is normal uh, for the person you're inviting to offer to contribute to the meal. In fact, it's, it's normal for the host to plan the meal with a little bit of space so that they can contribute. And, and it's simply the way that we operate. We'd love to come over. What can we bring? A dessert, a, a side dish, something. And we contribute. And, and there's no, somebody probably wrote a rule book about these things, but I've never seen it. And it's just what we do, and it's just normal. Now, of course, in different cultures, that would not be normal at all. That would be highly offensive. To think that your guests should contribute or to think that the host would need you to contribute would be highly offensive, and yet for us it's normal. I'm, I'm learning these things. I'm also learning. One of the things that you do when you open your home is you make sure that you don't serve something that's objectionable. And so you check to make sure there are no allergies. You check on preferences. You may even go so far as to preview the menu. We're thinking about having pasta and chicken. Is that okay? That's the way that we open our home, and we make our home's inviting, and it's simply what we do, and we want to be gracious. And there's a whole host of other do's and don'ts that I'm mostly getting down, and sometimes I have to be uh, corrected uh, graciously and carefully. Uh, now, if you're the kind of person who's skilled in hospitality, especially if you are skilled in the American version of hospitality, one of the things that you will notice is that this is a letter that does not fit our unspoken, unwritten rules and assumptions about table fellowship. This letter really is about table fellowship. In fact, that is probably what's most familiar about this letter, is that it ends with that picture of Jesus outside, knocking, not waiting to be invited, by the way, but knocking and saying, open up and come in and let's eat together. And it begins with this summons and this call that is, is very uh, unfitting for our cultural uh, situation, where the Lord says bluntly to his church, you know, I've tasted what you have to offer, and quite frankly, it turns my stomach. This is not the way that we would work, but this is the way the Lord works and the way that he engages with hospitality and the way that he calls his church to fellowship and to communion. And in a sense, this is a letter in which Christ is saying to his church, I love to have fellowship with you. I love to have communion with you, and I, I love to share myself with you, but you need to know that the way that you're going about it is all wrong. And your approach to our relationship is completely upside down. But, the Lord will say, I can show you how to put things right. I can show you how to receive my hospitality. I can show you what it is uh, to be refreshing rather than nauseating in your ministry. That's what this letter is about. Jesus wants stale, lukewarm churches, and I think we could say stale, lukewarm Christians. Jesus wants stale, lukewarm churches to find refreshment in him. And it begins uh, with this diagnosis of what's wrong in Laodicea. This is our first point, that Jesus has a problem with tepid churches. Jesus has a problem with tepid churches. Look at uh, verse 15 and 16. The problem that Jesus has is that tepid churches make him sick. He says, because you are lukewarm, you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word actually means this is about to happen. 
I'm about to spew you, the King James says. I will spew you out of my mouth. This is graphic language. It it is not uh, something that we would say in polite company, and yet it comes from the lips of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who will not bruise a broken reed, who will not quench a smoking flax, and yet Jesus is saying there's... There's something about the Christianity in Laodicea that makes me want to reach for something else to wash the taste out of my mouth. There is something unsavory about what's going on in Laodicea. When I was a teenager growing up and going to summer camps, we'd play all these little tricks on one another, and especially in the dining hall, you'd wait for somebody at your table to get up and go get more tater tots. And you would reach for the salt, and you would dump as much salt as you could into their Kool-Aid while they were gone, and you would stir it around, and you'd wait for them to come back, and you'd try to keep a straight face and not look at it, and not say, oh, why don't you try some? You'd try to keep a straight face, and you'd watch to see what would happen, and it only had to get to their lips. They only had to take a sip, and they knew there was something wrong. And the Lord is saying, I only have to take a taste of what's on offer in your church. It's almost right just a little bit off. And it doesn't sit well. And Jesus has a problem with tepid churches, and the problem is that tepid churches make Jesus sick. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that you're lukewarm, and why is that such a bad thing? Well, there are a few ways to understand this. One interpretation, when uh, Jesus is talking about being hot and cold and lukewarm, one interpretation says that what Jesus is really concerned with in Laodicea is essentially a spiritual apathy. We'll call this the Katy Perry interpretation, because she's got that song, you're hot and you're cold, you're yes and you're no, you're in and you're out, you're up and you're down, and there's uh, the genius of pop music for you. But the Katy Perry interpretation says, well, look, hot is obviously good because we all want to be on fire for the Lord, don't we? And so that means that cold is necessarily bad and lukewarm is somewhere in the middle, some sort of uh, tepid, lukewarm, quasi-Christian blah. And maybe the idea is that what Jesus wants is for the Laodicean church to stop waffling already. Stop riding fences. You're either for me or you're against me. You're either hot or you're cold, and I wish you would just pick sides already. But Jesus is not asking his church, his beloved, his children whom he is reproving and disciplining, he is not asking them pick sides already. I wish you would either be for me or against me. He is saying, I wish that your outward ministry your outward face to the world around you, your witness for Jesus. I wish that there was something that resonated, something that displayed the fact that you have anything to do with me at all. I wish there was some savor of the gospel in your church and in your ministry. You see, a better way to understand what Jesus is saying is to consider the the geography and the culture of Laodicea. Specifically, what you need to know is that Laodicea was one of three sister churches, or sister cities, really. Uh, Ten miles to the north, there was Hierapolis. And six miles to the east, there was Colossae. And these three cities shared a lot in common, lots of resources. In fact, they were so close, you may recall that when Paul writes his letter to the Colossians, he says, make sure that your letter is read to the Laodicean church as well. 
So there was a connection, a connection between the churches if they were there, and certainly a connection in trade and commerce and culture and resources between these three cities. But there was one resource that Laodicea could not share with the other two because Laodicea didn't have it, and that was a reliable water source. See, Hierapolis was known for their hot springs, thermal pools of, of mineral water, and it made the whole city into something like a spa. And so people would come from miles around, from all over the Mediterranean world, to soak in the baths at Hierapolis because it was soothing and it was medicinal and it was, it was a rejuvenating experience. And then Colossae, on the other hand, was a city uh, that didn't have a river as a source of water, but it did have a mountain spring flowing right into the city. And so Colossae had all of the cool, clear, fresh water that they could handle. Laodicea didn't have either of those. Laodicea's only source of water into the city was five miles away. And it came into the city through a stone Roman aqueduct. And so on its way into the city, it would pick up just enough warmth and just enough mineral content that when it got there, it was a stomach-churning yuck. Nobody wanted to drink the water in Laodicea. And the Lord is saying to this church, your ministry has become like your water. There is nothing appetizing. There is nothing useful about it. It's not rejuvenating because it's hot. It's not refreshing because it's cold. It's just sort of a nothing, nauseating nothingness. And Jesus is telling the church that there is nothing appetizing or useful about their ministry. They had lost their prophetic edge. That's part of what the church is to do, isn't it? To diagnose and to treat the depravity around them or, or even in their midst, in the world around them, to diagnose and say, this is wrong and this is right, and to treat those things with the burning heat of God's law. And they had lost the cool, refreshing nature of the gospel, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the love of God in Jesus Christ that comes to sin-weary uh, sinners like a cup of cool water on a hot day. They were stale. They were tepid. A poor excuse for a church and their ministry and their witness had nothing restorative, nothing refreshing, nothing of the savior of the, the savor of the Christian gospel, and it made Jesus sick. Now he takes uh, his critique a little bit further. He tells the church in verse 17, uh, the reason that they are lukewarm, the reason that there's nothing of the gospel present among them, and the reason that there is no savor of the gospel in their church is that they simply thought they had no need of what Christ could offer them. Take a look in verse 17. For you say, I am rich. You say, I am prosperous. You say, I have need of nothing. Jesus says, here's your evaluation of yourselves. There's nothing that I can offer you. You don't want what I have for you. You're full of the things of the world already. Now, there's a chance that Jesus is actually speaking to this church about material goods, that they are full of the things of the world, literally. And if so, that is an indictment on this church when we've seen throughout the other six letters how, easy, how eager or how willing, rather, these other churches were to fall even into financial destitution because they were holding fast to Christ. 
And if you compromise with the world, you can get along. But if you refuse to compromise with the world, one of the first things that happens to the church is economic hardship. People lose their jobs and their houses. And so it may be an indictment on this church that they are a compromising church, that they are full of the things of the world, but they say we are rich and we're prosperous and we don't need anything. Now that fits perfectly, again, with what we know of the context of Laodicea, because Laodicea was a very, very wealthy city. It was a banking city. It was the kind of place that, uh, that governors and emperors even would come and would exchange some of their monies from around the Mediterranean world, and they, they were invested in the gold standard, and you could keep your funds and your treasures there. It was a banking center. Laodicea was a very wealthy city. In fact, they were so wealthy that just about 35 years before this letter, there was a devastating earthquake in the region. It almost leveled Hierapolis and Colossae and Laodicea, and as Rome often did, Rome sent some imperial funds, stacks of money to Laodicea to help them in their rebuilding efforts. And Laodicea was so wealthy, they sent it back. No thank you, Rome. We are wealthy. We are prosperous. We don't need anything. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living in a place where everyone believed that if you just worked hard enough, if you just made the right friends, if you just made the right decisions, you could be completely and utterly independent and you wouldn't need anything else. Can you imagine having more than you ever dreamed of, being full of the things of the world and being comfortable all by your own power? Can you imagine being so self-sufficient that the offer of Christ comes to you and it's portrayed as good news, but quite frankly, life is already so good that you're not sure you even need any good news? Could you imagine what it is to be a church in that place? I think you can. This is where you live. You live in a place where you can have everything if only you will play your cards right, if only you have the right opportunities, and everything is at your beck and call. And if you are sick, you can go to the doctor. You can at least afford one. And if you can't, we have all sorts of programs if you can't afford one, and we'll make sure that you're taken care of. And if your car breaks down, there's... A mechanic, you pick them. Uh, you can find one on every street corner. Just go lease a new one. That's okay. Everything's there. Everything's for you. And you can, uh, you can have whatever you want. And that's why in America, when the gospel is proclaimed, people look at you like you're trying to sell them a snowblower in Hawaii. They're not entirely sure they need any good news. And this is where apathy comes into the church. When the church becomes squeezed by the culture around her, and just like the culture around her, churches start to believe that we don't need anything that Christ has to offer us because we have enough of the things of the world already. I think it's instructive for us to consider around the world the different versions, heretical, false versions of Christianity that take hold in different places. Consider the global south. Consider the poor, uh, urban, and rural areas of our own country. What is the false gospel that's catching on like wildfire in those places? It's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel that teaches that Jesus' first priority is to make you happy and healthy and wealthy because you better believe nobody else is going to help you with those things. And so the gospel gets squeezed by the culture around her. And there's a false Christ. But what about Europe? What about New England? What about well-off, middle-class, educated America? 
Are we struggling with the prosperity gospel? No. Because we don't need it. Quite frankly, we don't need much of anything. And so the version of Christianity that is peddled everywhere we go, especially in New England, is liberalism. The idea that sin is a figment of your imagination and Jesus is really just an example and the resurrection is just a metaphor. And we're being fed this false gospel that costs nothing and promises nothing because, quite frankly, we need nothing. This is the church in America. This is the church in Laodicea. It is full of smug, self-sufficient complacency, and it's lukewarm. And lukewarm churches like that make Jesus sick. That's a problem in the church. Jesus says he has a problem with tepid churches. The problem is that in their self-sufficiency, in their complacency, they've grown lukewarm. There's nothing of the savor of the gospel. And it turns his stomach. Now in the rest of the passage, Jesus shows, though, that he has a solution for our nauseating self-sufficiency. And this is point number two. That Jesus has a solution for tepid churches. I think by extension as well, Jesus has a solution for tepid Christians. Now we could summarize Jesus' remedy for lukewarmness in three words, and if you'll indulge me, we're going to take them out of order the way that the text presents them because they make sense in my mind that way, and hopefully it makes sense to you as well. But Jesus says three things to his church. His solution is threefold. He tells them, repent and buy and open. He tells them, repent, and he tells them in in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is really the the summary point, which is why we're beginning with it. This is a summary point of Jesus' advice to the churches. Not just to Laodicea, but to all of his churches and to all of the problems in all of his churches. And these seven letters, we have seen this now five times, and the only two uh, that were not called to repent were Smyrna and Philadelphia, the only two churches that had no challenge from the Lord and no, n- no indication that they were going astray in some way. But every other church, in whatever situation they face, the Lord calls them back. He says, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and return to me. You need to reorient your life and your evaluation of what is good and bad and true and false and rich and poor. He says you need to repent. Now, in its most basic sense, the New Testament word for repentance means to have a change of mind. That's essentially what repentance is. It's a complete reversal, a 180. A change of values and a change of practices, a change of desires. And that is what lukewarm Christians and lukewarm churches need. Notice that charge that we already read back in verse 17. You say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. And here's what you think, but you're actually deceived. The Lord who is faithful and true, the one who is the perfect witness in the amen, says you don't see the half of it. You say that you're rich and prosperous and you need nothing, but really not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Isn't that a sad picture? Destitute and yet deceived. And Jesus says the church is like the emperor who's gallivanting around town in his new clothes, and he doesn't even realize how embarrassing his situation is. 
naked and poor and blind and wretched and pitiable. And Jesus unmasks them. He says, don't you see? Don't you see how bad things are? Don't you see how empty you are if you have not what I can offer you? Don't you realize the emptiness of what this world can promise you? And he says, you need a change of mind. You need new affections. You need new desires for Christ. You need new hatred of your sin and self-sufficiency. You need to repent and to change and to turn. Now the reality is that there are many different ways that we can be blind to our need for Christ. It happens for those who have much of this world's goods. It happens in churches where we're well off and we have uh, lots of things and lots of resources that we can depend on. And we can become complacent. We can say, oh, yeah, I think we're all right on our own. And that happens that way and, and in, in that situation. But it also happens uh, because you yourself have a lot in yourself. It happens for young people who are strong and beautiful and intelligent and full of, of opportunity in the world. And complacency sets in with young people who have no time for religion, but it's the kind of thing your parents think is important, but you're too busy. You're too busy pursuing your relationships and, and your endeavors and your experiences and your distractions and your entertainments and your pleasures. You're too busy dreaming of, of how bright your future is to stop and think about the wretchedness of your sin and your need for a Savior, and Christ says it's disgusting. The only hope is that you would repent. And turn. It happens for those that are older as well. A parent, a grandparent, and you're used to giving advice. You don't, you don't need to take it from anyone else. You certainly don't need to have your sins exposed by the word of God, do you? And, and corrected. You certainly don't want to be humbled enough to have to go to your own children whom you have just scolded and then shown that your heart is exactly the same as theirs. No, thank you. I, I, don't, I don't need anything, we might say. It happens in churches. It happens in churches when we set out our plan and our goals for the future, and it's all according to our best guess of what we're capable of, or what the Lord will, uh, will do, or, or especially what uh, the, uh, the gurus tell us is the best thing going for church growth. In fact, we, we don't listen to what the Lord says he will do or can do for those who step forward in faith and believe what he may do as he presses his people to new obedience and new growth. There are many kinds of complacency, many kinds of nauseating self-sufficiency, but the Lord says they all look the same. They all turn his stomach, and they all demand repentance. And so he says, repent, turn. Turn from your sin and turn to me. And he says, buy. That's the second word he gives us. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me. Now he goes on to list a few things that we need, and we'll look at those. But let's not go further than that first phrase. Buy from me. That's the key. In our repentance, we are turning from something and to something else. And he says, when you turn from your sin and your nauseating complacency, turn to me, because this is where you find all that you need. This is where real riches are found. Come and buy them from me. Jesus is the key. It's connection to him and communion with him that is the solution to lukewarmness. 
the problem in Laodicea was not necessarily temperature so much as it was connection to the source. They were removed from Christ and they didn't think they needed what he had to offer. And Christ says, come, if you would be rich, buy from me. Now, what does he tell them to buy? He says, buy gold that's refined in the fire. You remember, Laodicea is a banking town, right? But Jesus is telling them, you need something better than the gold standard of this world. You need something more than the riches that will pass away when the whole heavens and earth are bathed in the fire of God. You need a righteousness that has already passed God's judgment, a righteousness and a gold that's already been refined. And it's found only in Jesus. And so he says, come and buy. Make an exchange. Give up relying on yourself and invest by faith in the purity of Christ. He offers it to you. Come and buy of Christ. We find the same language of poverty and riches and the same idea of an exchange because we read this and we say, well, how can you buy gold if you're already poor? I have nothing to offer. But, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. And he speaks of this exchange. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And there's an exchange there. But it's still a little bit abstract. What's the exchange that he's talking about? How do we become rich by Christ's poverty? How does he become poor for our sakes? But if you turn back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's the same language all over again, for our sakes. And in exchange, he says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the gold that Christ says we ought to buy from him. Not with the possessions of this world. But he's willing to give it in exchange for our sin and our iniquity. To give us a righteous standing so that he would be made sin for us and in our place on the cross. To bear the burden of the wrath of the Father against sinners. He says, come and buy from me. I give it to you. I offer it to you. All it costs is your self-reliance. All it costs is your sin. And I will give you gold that will make you rich for eternity. Come and find righteousness and buy it in Christ. And then he says, buy from me white garments. Now, in the book of Revelation, uh, white garments are a clothing of holiness. It's a kind of garment that makes sinners uh, acceptable in God's sight and, and able to enter into his presence. In chapter 7, towards the end of the chapter, you'll, you'll read, if you follow along there, you'll read of this great multitude coming out of the tribulation of the world. All of them clad in white robes, and they're white because their robes have been washed, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb of God. He says, come and buy white robes from me. Come and receive the garments of my holiness. Let my perfect sacrificial blood cleanse the shame of your sin. Let it cover the nakedness of your iniquity. Come and buy purity from me. Come and buy holiness. Come and be washed and be clothed and made fit to come into Christ's presence. It's found only in him. And we remain naked until we are clothed with his righteousness and his holiness. And so he says, buy gold and buy garments and buy salve to anoint your eyes. Laodicea was also a city that was known for its medical schools. And in particular, it was known for ophthalmology. 
And they had discovered or, or developed what was called a Phrygian powder, and it was mixed into the salve, and it was applied to eyes. And, and you can find writers of the ancient world talking about using this powder, this salve from Laodicea. They were famous for it, to treat diseases of the eye. And he says, stop uh, trusting in the things of this world. Stop trusting in your own evaluation of your situation and how clear your eyesight is of your situation just because you have the things of the world, just because you're self-reliant, just because you think things are going well. Submit yourself to my wisdom and my eyesight. Buy from me salve. Listen to my word. Listen to the truth of my testimony. He says, I'm the amen. I'm the faithful and the true witness. I am the one who shows you the reality of your situation. So come and listen to me. Here as I diagnose where you are. Come and catch a glimpse of the Savior. It will keep you longing for less of yourself and more of him. He says, come and buy. Come and buy and repent of self-sufficiency and plead for the riches of his mercy and take hold of his garments by faith and follow the lamb who shepherds you in holiness. Folks, this is where zeal can be found. This is where the refreshing message of the gospel is to be found. This is where the rejuvenating message of Christ, dead for sinners and alive, for our life with him is to be found. This is where communion is to be found with the Lord and refreshment. And that's the picture, actually, that ends this letter. It's the picture of communion. It's how Jesus completes this solution. He says to nauseating, tepid churches, repent. He tells them to buy, and he tells them to open. Take a look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And he says, we'll have fellowship together. We'll sit at a table together and we'll have communion. And open the door, he calls. Now, you know this verse. You're familiar with this verse. Normally, we take it and we attach it to our evangelism. Sometimes it becomes... Uh, this debate about Calvinism and free will, because you've seen that picture, and maybe in your mind's eye, you've got that portrait by Walter Smallman, and it's called Christ at the door, and, and there's a sandy-haired colored Jesus standing out in the street, and he's gently knocking on a door that's shaped something like a heart, and on Jesus' side of the door, there is no handle. And it's the perpetual picture of of the inviting Jesus who is ever patient for his people. And it becomes this invitation, and it becomes a debate, and it becomes a whole host of things that this verse was never meant to be. But now that you understand the context of this letter, and when you remember that this letter was written to a church, then their smug self-complacency, they had rejected what Jesus had to offer. The picture is different. This is not the picture of the sinner's heart. This is the picture of the church. And there is light inside, and there is singing, and there is joy. And the pastor steps into the pulpit, and he says a few nice-sounding words, and everybody feels good at the end of the service. And where is Christ? He's outside. Rejected by those who should be his own. When you realize what this picture is, it ought to turn your stomach to realize that this is what we do. When we rely on ourselves and not the power of the Spirit, not the grace of Christ, we say, you know what, I'm okay. <laughs> we got these things going in my life and I'm all right. 
And what we're doing is we're forcing Christ out. But here's the truth, that he stands there because the church is still his. Even though she is lukewarm and tepid and nauseating at times, the church is still his and he stands there and he knocks. And he continues to knock. And he says, open up. Come and open. And even to tepid churches, even to true believers who have forgotten what it feels like to be zealous for the Lord, Jesus says, repent and buy. and Open to me and have communion with me and fellowship with me and learn from me and listen to me and follow me. Folks, we're about to come to the table of the Lord. A table where we have hospitality at the expense of Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, the bread that we break, the cup that we bless, is it not a participation, is it not a koinonia, a fellowship with Christ Jesus? We're going to come to the table of the Lord. But you need to know that unlike our version of hospitality, there is nothing that you can bring to this table to enhance the fellowship. There is no side dish of your own merit and your own self-sufficiency that you can bring with you and say, here is why I was invited, because I could bring the dessert. This is a table set for you. And it is offensive when we come in smug self-sufficiency and say, I am the one who's worthy to come to the table. No. Christ says, come with your emptiness. Christ says, come with your sin. Christ says, come with your unworthiness. Christ says, come with your hungering and your thirsting after righteousness that you don't have of your own. Come and open and have fellowship with me and communion with me. Come and feast with the Lord. Let's come together. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, thank you for the word of Christ which proclaims to us our need and your all-sufficient merit in him. Thank you for a righteousness not our own. Thank you for a holiness that you give and you lead us by your spirit to follow the lamb who becomes our shepherd. Oh, gracious Lord, thank you. We pray that if there are any who are tepid today, that you would convict us of our lukewarmness. Show us the areas where we have said, no, thank you. I don't need what you have to offer me. Show us those areas where we are feeling in ourselves to be sufficient. Expose those things, O oh Lord. Draw us again, as you always do at your table, and as you always do by your word, draw us again to faith in Jesus Christ. Draw us again to communion with yourself. Set our eyes and our hearts on that great day when we will be ushered in by faith in Jesus Christ and clothed with white garments, and we will eat and drink at your table in your presence forever. Oh, help us, O oh Lord, to rejoice today in who you are. Continue knocking at the hearts of those who are closed and who are hardened. Continue calling your elect to yourself until we open, until you come, and until we have communion. O oh Lord, keep us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.
very little more needs to be said. This is a table where we come and have communion with the Lord by His sufficiency, by His body broken and His blood shed. And this is a table that proclaims His all-sufficiency for those who come in the weakness and the emptiness of their sin. So repent and buy and open to Him. And if you have done that, if you have professed publicly your faith in Jesus Christ and you've been united to His church where this sacrament is administered, come, this table is for you. The sign and the seal, this promise of His grace is for you. Come and receive and have fellowship with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. If you've not yet done that, if you have not repented of thinking that you are sufficient, please do not come. If Christ is not your all and your trust, please do not come. Allow the elements to pass. Consider whether the Lord is calling you to buy righteousness of him and be united to his bride today. Jesus Christ gathered with his disciples for a meal. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would meet us at your table. Give us fellowship with the Lord, a spiritual fellowship by your Spirit as you cause our hearts to be raised up where he is seated and remains at your right hand until he shall come again to gather all your elect to yourself to conquer all of your enemies, even sin and death and hell. So, O Lord, raise us up to Christ at this table to see and to feed upon him and his sufficiency, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples, and he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
The Lord said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup and gave it to his disciples and he said this cup is my blood of the new covenant it's given for many for the remission of sins take and drink all of you Christ said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Please join me in prayer. Lord and gracious God, you who did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not give us all things in him and make us rich in Christ beyond measure? Thank you that nothing is able to separate us from your love and from the merits of Christ, who is all-sufficient for we who have nothing of our own. Keep us, O Lord, by your strength and power and your spirit until that day when we have full communion with you, the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we eat together in the kingdom of God, we pray. Amen.
Our hymn of response today in the Green Trinity Hill, number 672, Trust and Obey. Why don't you stand together as we sing 672, Trust and Obey. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, ye redeemed of the Lord, 
hear God's good word for you, his benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.